Welcome to the Theory of DFS podcast. I'm Jordan Cooper, the co-author of the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports 15-hour audio DFS masterclass you can pick up at theoryofdfs.com with the Major League Baseball season approaching uh, in about two weeks or so. Figured bring on the purveyor of uh, what I believe is uh, the best baseball projection system for both daily fantasy and I guess season long as well. It's Derek Cardi with the bat. So Derek, are you are you are you ramped up for uh, for this season? Because I've I've questions for you because uh, we, we we do have some rule changes and and I don't know I know how much do, how much do you value spring training data? Almost none. I know everyone's like freaking out about the spring training data. Like, oh, look at what's happening this year compared to last year, and uh, some of those trends might wind up being real, but like the spring training data is just so meaningless, especially in a year where we have the world baseball classic going on. Like, like it's not even like we have the normal, like weird low level of competition going on in spring training. Like it's completely like weird beyond normal spring training levels because so many players are, are not even there. So it's uh don't try to read too much into spring training. Is the spring uh, training like, is, is spring training data like kind of meaningless because it's small sample, or because it's just not even relatable to what they'd face in the regular season, regardless? Both. I mean, obviously the sample is small, but also the level of competition is so different. Some guys are facing real major leaguers. Some guys are facing, you know, rookie ball guys. Um, and then also there's the difference between the two leagues, like the league in Arizona you know, is going to have higher elevation, you know, basically more hitter friendly conditions than, than the league in Florida might have. And then there's also just like the, even if we know when we isolate the level of competition, like, okay, this guy faced Max Scherzer and he faced this double a guy and he faced this guy and this guy and this guy, even if we know all that, these guys still aren't like a hundred percent. A lot of these guys come into spring training. They're still ramping up. They're working on new pitches. They're like, it's just not, everyone's not even trying. Like there's just so many unknown variables that like, just don't try to do anything with it. Unless, unless the only thing that really matters probably is like trying to figure out guys roles, you know, but that, that doesn't really matter for DFS. It matters for season long players. Like, okay, maybe this guy, the manager likes and he's going to bat higher in the order more often, or he's going to play more, or this guy's got the leg up on the fifth starter competition or like whatever. But in terms of like trying to figure out skills, like just forget it. <laughs> How about the stuff, the metrics that are normalized quicker, like in spring training, if you see a pitcher is throwing three miles an hour slower than what they would normally throw, is, is that, is that something that's reliable also? Because like you said, they may be working stuff out. They may not, you know, really even be throwing that hard, I guess, or, or their pitch mix. They're like, I'm going to work on my curveball, So I'm going to just throw a ton of curveballs, or I'm going to work on my off speed pitch is even the stuff like that, where, where all oh, this, this guy's velocity is up two miles an hour since last year, or this guy's velocity is minus two, uh, in the other direction. Is it something that you could, for, for the veteran pitchers, the ones that have previous spring trainings, is, is there, is there a viability of, well, in the past six spring trainings, like he's thrown his average velocity. He's been one one mile an hour below during spring training than regular season. But in this one, he's four miles an hour below. So we have to be concerned about it. Is there any validity to this? 
Yeah, so that's actually something that I'd like to study. I haven't yet, but that's kind of the one thing where there might be something to that. I'm more willing to buy into the guys that have increased their velocity because if if the velocity is low, like it really could just be, you know, he's just working up. You know, he, he's not there yet. The velocity will get there. Um, he's just, you know, he's not trying hard enough yet, whatever. But if the velocity is higher out of the gate in spring training, then that could be an indication that his velocity is going to be higher this year. Of course, we have to consider that spring training guns may be hot. Some parks may be measuring different than others. I certainly wouldn't buy into any like pitch mix changes. Like, oh man, his curveball usage is so much higher in spring training. Like he might just be working on it. Uh, but velocity, uh, other kind of really stable pitch characteristics, especially if we're seeing improvement relative to to decline, I think you can probably buy into that a little bit. Okay, here's a question that I ask you pretty much every season because you come on to tell me tell me about what 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 edges we could find possibly, especially in the beginning of the season. Are there any ballpark changes, or the the way they're constructed, or the wind dynamics, or anything? Because we saw. What uh, what it last year with you know the Orioles, yeah, like that became a much more pitcher friendly park, and the numbers reflect you know the markets didn't necessarily fl- reflect that as much, and the DFS projections didn't around the industry may not have yours did. Are there any are there any new? I haven't heard. I mean, I dude, I don't even start looking at baseball until like now, so like mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what players are on what teams yet until probably the day before the first slate of the season. Are there any changes in ballparks that that we should be getting on board early in the season when the field thinks that, oh, this is a pitcher's park, but now actually it's a little bit more hitter friendly or it's a hitter's park, but it's actually more people think it's a hitter's park, but it's not anymore. Yeah. So there's three parks that changed their fences this year. Um, the Rogers Center moved their fences in and up. Uh, Comerica moved center field in a little bit and moved some of their walls down a little bit. And City Field made a very small change where they just moved a little portion of right field in a little bit. Um, so all of them basically are going to help these parks play a little bit more hitter friendly, but we shouldn't expect anything near the magnitude of what we saw with Baltimore last year. Like Baltimore moved their fence back like 30 feet and doubled the height of it. Like it was insane for like a third of the ballpark. Well, I mean, um, if you, I mean, they had a good reason. Their pitching staff's awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, last year we should have expected a big change with Baltimore. It was the second largest fence move back in major league history. The only other park that has moved their fence back further was like Fenway park in the fifties. Um, it was like a big deal. Like we really never seen anything like it, especially in the modern era. Uh, the changes that we've seen this year are pretty average changes that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years. If we look at other parks that have moved their fences, these kind of fall right in line with like the, the middle ground of like, eh, it's going to matter. It's not going to be massive. I know I've heard some people getting excited about the Rogers center. Oh man, they moved in the right center field alley so much. Like this is going to be like this massive, it's going to be such a good hitters park now. Uh, yeah. If you hit the ball there, it's probably going to be helped, but it's really just a small part of the park. And a lot of the, the impact that we're going to see from the fences moving in is going to be offset by the fences getting higher, basically around the whole park. So uh, it's does, going does to that, Does that mean maybe, maybe, Home runs may not be affected, but maybe more doubles. Yeah, it could be. 
Um, I think we'll probably see a small, like a very small boost in home runs, maybe a little bit of a boost in doubles. Comerica is the one that I think will have the most impact because their fence is moving down and uh, and the fences are moving in. So they're both kind of working in the direction of the hitter. It's not anything massive. You know, center field's moving in, I think, 12 feet. Some of the fences are moving down anywhere from like a foot and a half to like six or seven feet. Uh, so it's going to help. But if we're going to compare it to like Baltimore, which is what everyone probably will, will compare it to because that was what we saw last year, we're looking at a magnitude maybe like one-fifth of the impact of Baltimore uh, from any of these parks. So, so, so it probably won't be that noticeable it won't projection. be that noticeable, but it is another reason to use a good projection. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but like a projection will see these things. It will incorporate it, even though it might be kind of harder for someone to like eyeball. Uh, but it's one of many edges that are going to accumulate and a good projection is going to capture it. Is there anything related to like wind or humidity, humidors, you know, any anything <laughs> that's non-ballpark related that... You know, they, they they put up a they put up a screen here so the wind doesn't affect something as much because I know they did that yeah. down in Texas last year, and obviously you have the San Francisco situation where yeah. you know oh the it, Roth is always the wind's blowing out at twenty miles an hour but doesn't matter because the ballpark yeah and then the in, then in the COVID year they they changed the screen in in San Francisco so it played hitter friendly for a year because it changed the wind patterns and like uh, I don't think we have anything like that going on this year. I mean, there can certainly be things that we don't know about yet that just hasn't really been publicized. But as of right now, I'm not aware of anything like that. Okay. Now now getting into not the ballpark changes, but the actual rule changes. I think there's three big ones, if you want to call it that. And yeah. I mean, like you said, I don't know how you go by the spring training data, but I mean, it's something to go by. I think the number one thing that we see is the pitch clock. So the pitchers having to pitch 15 seconds afterwards, would you, have you seen or would you theorize or how would you go about, uh, how would that positively or negatively globally, like really the two questions are, does this help the hitters or pitchers on average globally? And then on the outlier scenarios, I think of Sonny Gray who takes forever to pitch. Like, is that going to negatively impact pitchers that normally take a long time to pitch or, and not really affect those that typically have typically pitch quickly anyway. So what have you seen from this pitch clock dynamic on how it would affect the projections of pitchers and hitters? Yeah. So even though the spring training data is noisy, the good news is that major league baseball gave us some really good data because they didn't just say, all right, we're just going to do a pitch clock. They tested it out in the minor leagues. They tested these rules out in the minors. So we can see, okay, what was the impact from one year to the next in the minor leagues? And what we saw is that if we're just talking about like offensive stuff, you know, hitter pitcher stuff, um, strikeouts went down a little bit. Um, not a lot, but strikeouts went down a little bit. So I think we could say on average, maybe this helps the hitter just a little bit. Um, I don't think it's going to be anything massive, especially because, I mean, we were dealing with minor leaguers, which are obviously not as advanced major leaguers, not as good, maybe not as as able to adapt as quickly. Um, and the minor leaguers weren't given a lot of notice before the change was made. The major leaguers this year, they had all offseason to prepare for this. 
and they're major leaguers. They're, they're the best in the world at this. They're going to be able to adjust, I think, for the most part. Um, you know, we'll see we'll see the, the occasional, you know, infraction of this. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal um, in terms of, you know, what we see at the plate. Uh, I think the guys at the extremes, like you're saying, again, probably not that big of a deal because they had all offseason to prepare for it. You know, they're the best at this. They're used to adjusting for things their whole careers. And the guys that are really, really slow are generally relievers, guys like Kenley Jansen, Devin Williams. So for DFS purposes, they don't really matter that much. Um, I think starters, for the most part, are going to be fine. So so there's, so there's no there's – no... There's no, there's no thought in like, I, like I'm thinking through from from a more logical perspective, that veteran, like these, these are my theories, that maybe veteran pitchers are more like, like I could see like, if a pitcher is not used to pitching that fast, I would think in terms of it, it defaults more towards the pitcher than the catcher, because the catcher call call pitches. But at the end of the day, if Max Scherzer just says, I want to throw three fastballs, he's just going to throw three fastballs. So, like, do you, th- I mean, is this something to even consider testing that the age or experience of the pitcher as a as a variable on how much the pitch clock affects their performance because they may not have the, it may not have as much of the capacity of, you know, the catcher guiding them through like okay, we're going down and away here. We're, we're doing a slider there. That he kind of has to like, yeah, I got to make the best decision I can, and I'm 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 just gonna nod my head and throw the ball. Yeah, if you want to get into the weeds with this, like you can build a lot of different narratives as to what can happen. Like yeah, we might see something like that. We might see guys that you know, you Darvish, who has like eight different pitches to throw. He's not gonna be able to shake the catcher off on six of them to get to to the one pitch he wants. Like. Uh, there's not time for that. So those type of guys, maybe you see something with. The veteran guys, you might actually see the opposite happen. Like the, the big story out of spring training this year feels like it's been like Max Scherzer is like trying to use the pitch clock to his advantage, using it strategically to like throw off the hitter's timing. Um, so like you might see that with some of the veteran pitchers, but then some of them might not even care. So it's just, you'll probably see some stuff on the individual level that'll be tough to figure out just because of noise. But I do think there is that kind of thing going on with it next rule change is the defensive you know, shift. Hold on. We, we don't want to know there there is actually one big impact of the pitch clock that we didn't touch on oh we didn't okay uh, let me know oh i want to know i was going to move on to the defensive shift stuff so uh, so let let me know what what what's the biggest impact stolen bases oh well, i was gonna i was gonna i was gonna get to that's part of the third one well we'll come okay. around to that because that's related to a to another one okay uh, so Second one is the defensive shift stuff. Yeah. So now now they can't have, you know, the third baseman playing as a second baseman in the outfield, you know, stuff like that. From a, a DFS perspective, I mean, I would theorize that obviously Babbitt should go up, which means that, you know, it's more likely that sing, sing, uh, outs turn into singles and more likely that there may be more people on base when someone hits a home run. I mean, you have to say that this is going to positively affect the offense, but where will it affect the offense more positively or negatively? Because I don't see like it affecting a guy like, like the Joey Gallo types 
that are like Cody Bellinger types. Like, like they're, they're, sw they're swinging for the fences or hitting a strikeout no matter what. And sure, when they do make contact, there'll be one less fielder there to, you know, to, to, to shore up the gaps. But they don't hit the ball. They don't hit the ball in those spots that frequently to begin with. So what what have you seen from a from from defensive ship? Because essentially, aren't we kind of going back to like, oh, we have tons of data on this. It was like when no one did defensive shits, which is like 110 years worth of baseball. Yeah, unfortunately, it's hard to compare baseball in 1995 to baseball today. But we do have data on this that we can study because, uh, you know, Major League Baseball with their stat cast data and everything, they label every single pitch with what the defensive alignment was, at least in rough strokes. So we can see, okay, this is what happened when Joey Gallo had a shift applied on him, and this is what he did. And then this is what he did when he didn't have a shift applied on him. And so we can do that basically for every player, and we can look at the difference in how they performed with the shift and without the shift. Um, now it's maybe not a complete apples to apples comparison because maybe there are different things, you know, the shifts aren't being applied at random, you know, like there might be a reason that it was applied in this instance, but not in this one. So there are caveats, um, but at least it is some data that we can work with. And we have several years of it, which is really nice at the major league level. So what we can do is we can make that comparison. And, and before we get into that first, we should say, the shift is not going away. The shift is being managed. They're, yeah, they're applying rules to how you can shift. You know, you can't have three infielders on, on the right side of second base, but you can move your shortstop right up to second base as close as you can get. And you can move the third baseman over to the, you know, where the shortstop would normally shift. And if you want to get weird, and I'm sure we're going to see teams do it, we'll probably see, you know, the left fielder move to where the shortstop might have normally stood on the outfield grass, you know, up in front of the, the center fielder and the right fielder. Like the teams are going to find ways to do this. So it's not fair to say, okay, there's no shift. Um, but Major League Baseball also helps us because they give us a category. It's not just shift versus no shift. They have a category called strategic shift, which is basically the kind of shifts that we'll probably see this year, which are like partial shifts. Uh, so we can compare, okay, what do players do with a full shift versus a partial shift? And what does that impact? And so that's basically what I've done this offseason. I've gone through, I've looked at this on the league level. Um, I've looked, you know, if certain types of players are impacted more than others, obviously lefties versus righties. Uh, and we find a few things. So first, I'm not of the belief that this is going to be something that massively boosts offense. Um, I think it'll probably boost it a little bit, but when everyone thinks of the shift, they think about it in terms of BABIP or, you know, base hits, but not everything happens in a vacuum. Um, when a shift is applied, pitchers are going to pitch differently than they would without a shift. Batters are going to approach it differently than without a shift. So when you actually look at the data, some of the stuff we see that's really interesting is that when a shift is applied, there's actually a walk penalty because pitchers pitch differently. They tend to nibble a little bit more. And so batters walk more when, when a shift is applied. So if there's not gonna be any shifts this year or lesser shifts, batters aren't gonna walk as much. There's also a strikeout uh, impact. You know, With the shift applied, I'm trying to think which way it goes. Strikeouts, uh, I would expect strikeouts to go down, uh, up a little bit without the shift now. So 
Um, so I think some of the, the impact that we see in terms of base hits may be offset by some of the things on like the plate discipline level. And then also when you look at, okay, this is what happens with base hits. Some guys are going to see bigger impacts. You know, you'll see some guys with their BABIPs, you know, jumping by, I think at the extremes, I would expect a BABIP to jump by like 20 or 30 points maybe. Um, but on the league level, um, I think we're only going to see, I mean, it really looks like, again, there's a lot we don't know, but based on the data, and, and I'm not the only one that's found this, there have been some other studies too, we might only see a few points, two, three, four points of BABIP on the league level increase. Uh, so really not a big deal for everybody. And then there's also with the shift, it feels like teams were being too aggressive with the shift, especially in terms of right-handed batters potentially. And so by not shifting on right-handed batters that much, they might actually improve a little bit because, or no, they might get worse a little bit because they were actually benefiting from the shift in the first place in terms of the walks and the strikeouts and stuff like that. So uh, it's not as simple and straightforward as everyone thinks, you know, oh, just figure out if it would have been a hit with fielders standing in a different spot. Like there's a lot to it. Um, and the bat is going to be accounting for it all, which is really nice. Um, but ultimately, I don't think the impact is going to be like massive. But the, the, uh, the third rule change, I think, is going to be the most massive. And I that's, agree. And that's the base. The bases being larger. Okay, so we have larger bases, and the pitcher could only make two pickoff attempts. Yep. Okay. So combine that with the pitch clock. Like even if even if you take out the pitch clock, but I mean the pitch clock will exacerbate this. Uh, you would have to expect you have to expect steals to go up. Yes, you do. I think this is going to be the most impactful. Uh, I think the base sizes is kind of I think what a lot of people have focused on. I don't think the base sizes getting you know an inch bigger or whatever is like that big of a deal. But I think you combine that with the pitch clock and the throwover rules, I think that's going to be a big deal. And again, like I said earlier, Major League Baseball was very nice to us. They gave us minor league data where we can compare from year to year uh, after making adjustments um, what happened to stolen bases. And what we saw in the minors is that stolen bases went way up, um, which makes sense. You know, pitchers can't throw over as much. There's a penalty if you don't get them on the third try. They only have so many seconds. Oh, is that a, is that a thing? I never even heard of that. What you? Yeah, so, I mean, how so else you could gonna... so you could go for a third pickoff, but if you don't get him out, he gets second base. Yep. Okay, so 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 which which allow? Okay, so this this cements something that I was going to ask you about about like the meta game of like, do you think second throwovers are even going to exist because it makes it so that the third throwover is so unlikely that that the runner is probably going to try to, if they if they have a signal to go, they're much more likely to go after being thrown over twice that yep. many pitchers will just simply throw over once. And then because the runner knows that he doesn't want to throw over twice, <laughs> that he's going to be more likely to steal after the first throw over. And you get this like kind of cat and mouse type of game. But yeah. ultimately in order to benefit from the throw over rule and uh, the, the bigger bases, I mean, it's not only up to the runner at first or a second or wherever to steal. I mean, you have managers that if we go back to like 20 years ago, like the money ball stuff, is it worth going for that out? Right. Like, like steals were like, 
not really looked at as the best analytical play. Has it, with these new rules, has it made it so that the smart move is more for steals? And will the managers reflect that? Or will you have managers that are like, nope, we're still we're still not stealing no matter what, or we're going to steal much less. We're not going to have as many double steals. We see like, we see in teams like the Astros or the Diamondbacks, like they attempt a lot more double steals than other teams, but that's a managerial decision. So how much, how much benefit are these new rules going to be on that? And would you, is there some way to account for the fact that certain managers tend to play baseball in a certain way? I mean, it could be even, even the stuff like bunting, but you know, sacrifice bunting, sacrifice, you know, that type of stuff. I mean, I know you have 7 million variables in the bat, but is, is managerial tendencies that shouldn't, it seems logical that it would affect that as well. Yeah. So this is actually the hardest part of this because we know stolen bases are going to go up uh, with, with a fairly high amount of certainty. The problem is figuring out which guys, because you're right. Like every manager is going to approach this differently. And we don't necessarily know ahead of time who's going to do what. We've seen reports, oh, the Braves want to run. Um, but we, we don't know for sure who's going to do it. Managers are certainly being incentivized to steal more, even if they're they're smarter, sharper, sabermetric type managers. Um, because it's not like steals are inherently bad. It's just if you get caught too often, steals are bad. You know, a lot of times the, the risk isn't worth the reward. But steals are going to be easier at this point. And... Because they're being incentivized to steal, that kind of uh, break-even threshold is going to get a little bit higher. And so teams are probably going to be, even the smarter teams, are going to be more aggressive, I would imagine. Which teams are going to go wild with it? I don't know. But someone will. But but globally, it, it will go—I mean, it will go up. It's just yeah. that the distribution of where they go up is—I mean, we're kind of guessing at this point. And also, and also Cardi, from a pitcher standpoint— does is is the the ability to hold runners on is that going to be decreased globally or is it the type of thing because we have the classic Noah Syndergaard awful at holding runners on but how about the pitchers that are good at holding runners on is it going to make them much easier to steal on yet Syndergaard since he's already awful it's not going to change that much so like is there going to be a distributional change on how the pitchers keep runners on base. Like you, you understand what I'm saying? Like it, is, is it going to be like linear across the board? Or do you think on some of these outlier cases that may, it, does it make it so that if Syndergaard's on the mound, it makes it like you must play these guys because they're going to be stealing like 700 bases now. Or is it going to be the thing that, yeah, he was easy to steal on before this and it didn't really get dramatically harder or easier anyway. So like it doesn't affect it that much, but a guy that was really good at holding runners on, he's going to see a little bit more steel increase because the rules are in place to make it so he can't do what he normally does. Yeah, so that's a really good question, and I don't have an answer to it right now. I'm actually going to I'm gonna write that down because I want to look into it. Uh, we, need to, we need to know because all I know is when Syndergaard's on the mound, you go slam, the, slam those, those steel props. Jeez, yeah. they got uh, – Cardi, they got to a point – they took them down. I mean, the books were literally yeah. taking them down. Like we're yeah, just not going to offer. We're just not going to offer these props anymore. 
there's a, a video coming out later this week from um, a user of the bat who just like completely destroyed stolen base props last year. And I think it might have been in react in reaction to him on some of these books, why they just stopped offering them entirely. So um, there's a video coming out in a couple of days. It's going to be I'm excited to see it because he's talked to me so much about it. And obviously I experienced it last year, too. Stolen base props were just like so massively mispriced, especially early in the year. For some guys, there was so much value to be had. And I'm really excited for this year because I don't know if the books are going to be adjusting for this out of the gate. I think some books are going to kind of take like a wait and see approach. And so we might wind up with some really big stolen base value early in the year. So I'm really excited about that. Um, in terms of like, are there going to be some pitchers impacted more than others? The answer is probably yes. Um, whether there's a way for us to know ahead of time, I'm not sure, but I can look at the minor leagues and I can say, okay, were the pitchers who were allowing a lot of steals to begin with, you know, did they see a bigger or smaller relative boost uh, to other guys? I did that with hitters. I looked at, okay, are the fast hitter or the fast guys, you know, the guys who steal a lot to begin with, are they, you know, because they're stealing so much already, are they like not stealing more? Are they stealing less? Is it the middle group that's going to go up? Like, so I was able to look at that and that's incorporated. Um, so I can do the same with pitchers and I can see if there are certain groups that are, uh, potentially more likely to be impacted than others. Is there anything else heading into the season that that I haven't mentioned? Because I, I mean, to me, those are those are the big ones. And obviously, I asked you about ballparks and wind or anything like that. Is is there is there any other variables that have changed, either from certain teams, certain positions, certain way the game is played more than others, that is going to be dramatic dramatically enough difference that there may be an edge in noticing it quicker in 2023 versus previous seasons. Well, I don't know about relative to previous seasons, but basically every season, the last few years at least, we don't know what the baseball is going to be like. We we're, we can calculate all these rule changes and everything else, but we still have no idea what the baseball itself is going to be. Or what baseballs uh, are going to be at which games. Exactly. I mean, last year they said they, they used three different baseballs. There were studies that came out that said that. So like, we really have no idea. Um, but one of the good things about the bat is that it does. It, know, it knows the baseballs. It, the bat knows the baseballs. Oh yeah. You know, this, the, the bat is, is, is designed to automatically detect when the league run environment, when the baseball changes um, either right at the start of the year, or if it changes mid year, it's constantly looking at the most recent data, how, you know, how quickly it stabilizes, which is which is pretty quick. We'll know after like three or four days, um, kind of what the new level is with the baseball, um, and uh, and yeah, so the bat does that, but we don't know ahead of time. But but we'll know quickly, um, especially if it's just one baseball everywhere. Then it, then it's much easier. <laughs> so do you think with 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 these changes from a global standpoint, runs per game should go up? Uh, I. Do I don't know if it's going to be massive just from these rule changes alone. Um, it could from the baseball, from other things. Um, but but I, it, from a directional standpoint, that, directionally, I would guess up a little bit, yeah, right. but not by a lot. Especially because the biggest impact, like I said, is stolen bases, and stolen bases ultimately they're fun for fantasy, they're real fun for betting. Ultimately, they don't have a big impact on run scoring, but it does in fantasy scoring. It does in fantasy scoring for sure. So, so my, my, although, although, although in MLB, we typically stack as it is, right? Because the correlation between batters is so high and strong. 
Uh, I would I would think that, and I mean I've I've said this in in, in every year that I've I've given out DFS advice. I mean it's in the course that the more and more, the more offense that there is, the more the correlation matters. And the less offenses, this happens in every sport, like NFL, like in Showdown, a game that is is 42 to 35, it's much more likely that, you know, some quarterback and wide receiver combination is going to be highly correlated and score a ceiling result, 80 plus percentile together, than in a 13 to 6 game, right? right. You're going to see one of these weird lineups win because since p- overall fantasy scoring is down, that means the importance of correlation is... Yeah, oh yeah, you're right. They're one guy scored eight and the other guy scored five. It's like, yeah, yeah, they're correlated, but it didn't. One guy didn't score that much, so the other guy didn't score that much. So, so like, no one scored that much. So in baseball, I would feel that if the if there's more offense, even if it's not even runs per game, but there's more people on base available to get points, either by steals, by runs, right, RBIs, that it increases the importance of stacking. In general, yeah, no, in base, completely agree. And even if overall run scoring doesn't go up massively, if stolen bases go up a lot, uh, that's still fantasy points. And there is going to be a correlation there because they're all facing the same pitcher. They might do double steals. Like, yeah, I, I would agree. Stacking becomes more important here. Right. The the, the best the best uh, the best feeling in uh, in MLB DFS is when it's first and second, and they double steal, and then the batter hits home run. <laughs> it's like thank you for the 10 free points that i didn't even need right because they okay yep. you got a double steal and thank you give it to me yeah that's always nice from a dfs perspective because obviously the bat x technically it's right the bat x right, is the bat x ever going to be the bat now with the stat cast stuff has been there for three years can it just be the bat I th- that was the plan originally, but I think it would confuse people. So I think it's just going to be the bad X forever. <laughs> <laughs> but people, are you are you making it so people could use the old bat system, or is it just one? It's still there. Yeah, if people want to use it, there it's still there. They can use it. Well, that 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 begs the question. It's a question that I get all the time. Okay, I get via DMs, I get via emails, I get on the pregame show via YouTube chat. I'll share with you my answer, and then you could. You could answer it yourself. Who has the best projections? Or what makes the bat projections better than the Roto-Grinders projections? I'm assuming you, you get this question. My my first question is, to this person, is typically, do you have any projections? And if the answer is no, like, all of them are good. Like, you're going to play DFS better when you have a way of turning player names into numbers. So yeah. you could do it yourself. You turn player names into numbers, right? Like you make your own model. Come up with the, with the top of your head if you want, right? Like that's a model, right? People are like, oh, I think this guy's going to do well, 13 median, right? You yep. can do that if you could do that for all the players in the pool and then build your lineups from that. But the mo- to me, the most important thing is having projections, right? Any model, any projections in the industry currently that are publicly available are better than having no projections and literally or better than truthfully, probably better than you trying to do it yourself with no experience whatsoever. And hell, yeah. even the people with experience, you try to do it and then it's still not better or you spent so long to do it. And it's like, Oh yeah, it's, it's like a point uh, oh, oh, one 
are better than like what I could have gotten for X dollars. That's way too cheap, right? Yeah. Right. So like that to me, that's the more important question. So if you want to go out and it's like, I want to pay, I want to pay for one of these publicly available projections. Personally, I suggest the bat, right? If you're going to use one, I use them all because I write it off as business. And I also want to see what other people are looking at. Uh, if you're going to go out and just like, okay, I'm going to buy the bat. And he's like, oh, well, I, I, I'm, I, I'd rather spend less and, and get stochastic projections. I'd rather get, you know, I use roto-wire projections or whatever whatever it is in the industry, saber sim, whatever the hell you want. Like, you could beat DFS with, with any of it. I mean, go go and do it. If it, if you're that price sensitive or you it integrates with whatever optimizer you use better or something, like, truthfully... Any of that is better than zero. Like I, if you're gonna just choose one, I would choose the bat. But then people ask, well, what what makes the bat different than the rotogrinders rejections or a saber sim or anything? Because aren't shouldn't they be incorporating the same things? And my my response, right? You you could clarify all this, or you could just agree with everything that I say. My response is that uh, Derek Cardi has ten plus years experience with like hundreds more variables than sites that have to do projections for 14 different sports and have to have them generally good. So if you want to have that like extra kind of extra edge in there, that that's why I suggest the bat, but Hey, any of them will do. You could still win at DFS with any of them. Yeah. I I completely agree with everything you said. Like, Literally any projections are better than no projections. I do agree. If you're on board with projections, and you should be, uh, if, they're, if they're listening, if people are listening to this, they are okay. Yeah. I, At I'm this point, I don't, I, I don't get many emails anymore uh, <laughs> after a hundred episodes of people are like, "I tuned in, and why didn't you give me the picks?" I think yeah. they get to the point <laughs> that you're not. You, that's not this type of show, right? Um, yeah, I'm biased, but I think the bat is is the best. Uh, the best compliment I get from users of the bat is, can you make this more expensive? How many people in any walk of life go to a company and say, I want to pay more for your product? Like that's lunacy. But I get it from lots of users every year because they want fewer people using it. So they have a bigger edge using the product. Like that's- Cardi, you get it from me on this show every year. You do. That's Every typically year, what I typically try to convince you for 10 minutes on charging more <laughs> money, saying that it's worth the thousand dollars a month. Like that's yeah. what it's that's what it legitimately is worth. And I would pay a thousand dollars a month. And you and from a business aspect, you have to go, well, how many people drop off at that price point that it makes it feasible that uh, would you rather get a hundred people giving you a thousand dollars a month or a thousand people giving you a hundred dollars a month? Like that's the same amount of money, but which one like where does that Cost bases go down. Me personally, I think I think you make more money at a thousand. I'm charging more, but you're, you're the you're it's your business. It ain't my business. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, what I would say is the difference. And and I, I think me and you talked about this a, a while ago. I think back in uh, the fur the Super Bowl party before COVID for Roto Grinders is that what I noticed in comparison to other projection systems is that the 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 environment variables are much more factored in than other systems. So ballpark factor, wind, right? If there's a Wrigley game, 
with 23 miles an hour wind blowing out, the bat is like the bat is like has a 12 inch erection for like <laughs> any at the Cubs and whoever they're playing, right? Like like yeah. it just it works out that way. But what I, what I don't think people realize in those scenarios because you you you're you're used to the tilt of oh so I play the bat loved the Wrigley win game and it was two to one, <laughs> right? Because none like so many balls weren't hit in the air, right? It was. It, Dude, there's tons of variance when it comes to baseball, when on any sport. What I think the bat is better at than other systems is expressing the variance rather than the median projection. So, like, when there's a Wrigley win game and all these means, right, because you use mean projection, go up by two points, well, the range of outcome, like, the floor has not really moved. The mean and the ceiling percentiles have moved up but essentially what that's done is made a wider range of outcomes so like the 20th 30th 40th percentile outcomes are still not good outcomes for you they're four to two games type of thing it just expresses there's much more higher end 12 to eight games in there but from that mean perspective people get hopped up on that mean and go well i gotta play i gotta play four guys from this game in my cash lineup or anything it's like no you're adding you're you're actually increasing your variance in your lineup. It may it may not be the best for cash games and maybe better for GPPs. So like I mean, we'll be talking about uh MLB projections next week on the DFS pregame show, but the the number one thing that I tell people about projections in baseball is that you have to really you have to really understand the standard deviations of players. When you start plugging in twenty seven hundred dollar Rudeo door at second base every night, <laughs> knowing that I know it's seven and a half mean for twenty seven hundred, but the dude never scores seven points. Like it's it's a mean, so you have to you have to realize that. So I think with the the ballpark and the environment factors and the weather and those types of things that you factor it seems. But what you would say is like you're not overweighting it; you're properly weighting it. Everyone yeah. else is underweighting it. But exactly. to me, the mean does go up, but I think people don't understand that that also means the variance, the standard deviation for the players also goes up. Yeah, exactly. And I think the reason for that is just because I think my methodology is better. I've been doing this for a really long time for, you know, I do football projections now, which are really good. But for a long time, I was focused solely on baseball. Like you said, a lot of these sites are trying to build projections for eight different sports I was just building baseball projections and I was doing it before DFS even existed. I was doing it, you know, back in the day I was working with, you know, just in the sabermetric community, not even like fantasy baseball specifically, just learning from people who were super smart. A lot of them went on to work for major league teams, you know, high up in major league organizations. Now, like I, the bat is designed with, with methods and, and processes that are the same as major league teams are using to, to make their decisions, which, which I think is really cool. And I just think the methodology is is stronger than everyone else. And I'm accounting for things. I think that other people aren't accounting for, or if they are doing it, they're doing it in a very broad strokes kind of way. Whereas the bat has a specific projection for every single thing. It's not just like, well, here's a broad kind of weather adjustment. Like, no, like it looks historically what happens in weather games and it has a projection. Okay. If it is 71 degrees, the projection is going to be different than if it is 72 degrees and it's going to be small, but it has that level of granularity for everything. 
And then obviously you see it more when there's a game that's 90 and a game that's 50. Um, but it is approaching everything on a very, very granular level. It's a, you know, every umpire has his own individual projection where we're looking at historical data and how long he's been in the league for. And we're looking at how much variance there is in umpire statistics and how many years of umpire data matters. And like, we're doing that for everything. Um, and so that's why I think the bat is so much better because it accounts for so many things and those edges really pile up together. Um, and it can create some unintuitive output sometimes until you dig in and you say, okay, well, there's this weather and there's this umpire and this uh, catcher pitch framing and this is the defensive alignment and like, you know, this guy has a really wide platoon split and like it's just until you really know what you're looking at, a lot of times it can actually look weird, but that gives us an edge because it looks weird because everyone else isn't looking at those same things. Especially when it comes to, I mean, people have complimented you on this for years. Those those cheap SP2s on DraftKings. Oh, yeah. Like to me, that's the that it it's remarkable, and it, it, it doesn't. Drew Smiley doesn't always work out, right? I mean, you're gonna get high variance from from these guys, but like so often, you'll 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 play MLB DFS for a week, and there'll be like two slates where it's like, why does the sixty eight hundred dollar pitcher that is projected to be three percent owned like project like as the second highest raw point pitcher on the slate? <laughs> like one of those types of things where it's like, why aren't why aren't I playing seventy percent of this guy? And then you, it makes it seems to you from any logic to not make that much sense, and then goes out and throw and gets twenty two fantasy points. <laughs> like yeah. like it just like oh okay, and then you save a ton of money and you stack an expensive team, and next thing you know, you're winning a GPP. Like is it for that specific things? Like is there is there is there a reason for that? Other than because, because it's like one of those like very bat like things. Because Rudeg Nodor, like that the, the poster child of the hitters, <laughs> that that the bat has a high mean, even though it's a very large uh, standard deviation. They typically project decently on any other like projection system. Maybe maybe they maybe a half a point less, but it's still within some type of directional way of like yeah yeah, yeah he's under the the DraftKings is constantly underpricing this guy. Right, that's the reason why he's showing up as a value, but right. the, the 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 pitchers on the other hand, like dude, I if you use the bat and you're like, oh, this pitch, like, and you use that lineup HQ, you may get like, like, oh, this this lineup I'm playing a a a ten percent on pitcher and a four percent on pitcher, and the two thirty percent on pitchers like don't even don't even make any of your lineups, and it's like you go to any other projection system and it doesn't look like that at all. Right. Is there, is there, is there, what would be, what, what's the reasoning behind that other than, then you must have so much more pitch, pitcher data that you're taking into account that others, other systems just aren't doing? Yeah. I really think it comes down to the bat is really good at identifying matchups. Um, and it's accounting for things oh, like BVP. <laughs> no, not like BVP. <laughs> it's accounting for the parts of matchups that matter. Uh, in a way that I think other systems aren't. And it's not afraid to go out on a limb. Like I wonder sometimes if uh, if other systems even like manually adjust guys down sometimes or like whatever. But even you just talk about DFS players, like for a lot of DFS players, there are some pitchers that they will just never play. This guy is bad and I can never play him. Like Patrick Corbin is a bad pitcher. I don't care what the matchup is. I will never play Patrick Corbin. And there are people that do that. You know, you might 
be listening to this and you might be one of those people. The bet doesn't care. The bet knows that Patrick Corbin is bad. The bet doesn't even like Patrick Corbin, but it likes his matchup today. It likes his matchup today because he sets up well in terms of, uh, you know, his pitch mix and his platoon split against this lineup of hitters. And the opposing team's lineup is watered down today. Their two stars are sitting out and he's in this ballpark with this umpire and this weather and this catcher and like whatever. Uh, and all of a sudden you add all that up and now he's five points above, you know, his, his normal mean and he's cheap and underpriced. And it's like, well, how do I not play Patrick Corbin? Um, well, we, 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 you find out sometimes in two innings why you don't. <laughs> that's why, <laughs> well, that's I why mean, I, I make it clear that, that just that these, it's high variance. Like a lot of the stuff that the bat incorporates, like over the course of a hundred, if this happened a hundred times, you're going to stand out to profit and have a much bigger edge over a hundred times, but intermixing that hundred times or 20 times where the thing blows up in your face. Oh yeah. And there's, 20, and, then, and there's 30 times where Patrick Corbin puts up 32 points at 2% ownership. Yeah. And there's not, not as many of those middle scenarios so people end up in the situation where it's like, imagine because I've I've seen I dude I saw this last year, where people where pa, it, especially Patrick Corbin, where someone Patrick Corbin's pitching on Tuesday, right, and Patrick Corbin goes out and has his wonderful two thirds of an inning, five walk, seven earned run performances, <laughs> right, and the bat and the bat projected him well for his sixty four hundred dollar price tag. Sunday comes around, he's 5,800 in a game where the wind is blowing in, in a game where two of the pa- two of the righty power hitters are sitting on Sunday. You, you know, Aaron Judge is out of the lineup for the Yankees and Stanton is out of the lineup for the Yankees. And they're throwing out five lefties also for whatever reason. And Patrick Corbin's sitting there now cheaper at 5,600. And then he's 5% owned again and he, and he throws... You know, eight innings, ten strikeouts, gets thirty-eight fantasy points, and then on month on the next start after that, the same person in, in the bat discord is like, "Oh, Patrick Corbin can't play him." It's like, well, last last start he did great. It's like, yeah, but I didn't play on Sunday, so they don't remember that. They remember <laughs> the the time before where he got blown up. So it's like, yeah. if you played Patrick Cor- Corbin for twenty-eight starts, you're probably ahead, but there are going to be times where you're you're way behind and you can't have that bias of, well, anytime I play him, he sucks. Or every time I don't play him, he goes off. Like that's a horrible DFS mindset to have, but you, you see it all the time. Oh, you do. And you can't play that way. You have to play consistently. You can't just try to chase or, or be afraid because of what happened recently or whatever. Like, and the bet is not going to, is not going to be like, you need the to bet play doesn't Patrick care. Corbin. The bet, dude, dude, but Alec Manoa could go out and throw 16 strikeouts in his last start and it'll still come up. It's the Alec Manoa against the pirates and he still projects poorly. <laughs> right. Because I mean, because it, it works in the other way also of people that are overperforming. The yeah. bat picks up on that very quickly of like, yeah. you know, he's way above expectation. His bad is unreasonably low. His strikeout, his, his swinging strike break is not sustainable. Or or his, or he's not getting, or he has a strikeout rate with a very low swinging strike rate. And he just happens to be getting, you know, eighth hitters out with three men on base on a pitch that was slightly outside on a three and two count that the umpire called a strike and he got out of that jam. Like it feels like the the bat picks up on that also. 
Yeah, it's looking at all of this stuff and, it, you know, it's it's objective. That's the point of a projection. It's objective. It doesn't care what you think about a guy. It cares about what he should do. And sometimes, you know, it's going to like that cheap guy and he's going to go out there and he's going to get blown up and put up negative 10 and you're going to be like, you know, I'll go in the bet discord. Why did I play this guy? Like I should have known he was just terrible. But like that's part of the range of outcomes. Sometimes you're going to get that and sometimes you're going to get a really good performance. Corbin, I think it liked, you know, really liked maybe like four or five times last year. One of them was his best game. It was against Pittsburgh, if I remember right. I think he had like eight innings, one run, like 12 strikeouts, and and he just dominated. And he was cheap and low-owned. And like if you play Corbin five times because the bat likes him and you get that one performance out of him, like you should be easily coming out profitable on him. And when he says likes, it's likes in relation to the salary. Yeah. Like it net like when people are joke around about Rude Nodor, if Rude Nodor was constantly priced at forty two hundred, it would like, never like him. Right, yet. right. We would never even be talking about it. He'd be like, Okay, he's there, like in in, in Orioles stack or whatever team he plays for now. Where does where does he play now? Uh I forget where he signed this year. Hopefully we don't have to see much of him. <laughs> but but yeah, it is definitely in relation to the salary. Although I do think that Pittsburgh game for Corbin, he projected for like 19 DraftKings points. Like it actually just like liked him, like even if he was expensive. Another thing you could use the bat for, because you have statistical projections, is for props. And yep. now I'm in Kentucky, so I can't I can't legally bet. Uh, on, on retail U.S. sports books doesn't mean I can't elsewhere, uh, but I do prize picks and underdog. And let me tell you, I made a good amount of I made five figures using the bat on prize picks and underdog last year. Uh, I have a sneaking suspicion that it's going to be much more difficult this season. You think so? I think that. I think the lines are going to be better. I think you're going to have to, that I still think that my, my, my common, my common workflow is 1am Eastern for prize picks. And then when I wake up in the morning for underdog, because typically under, typically underdog only posts like pitch count props and really basic, really, really not K's, not nothing uh, early. They'll have some hitter props that are exploitable also early. But most of those go up in the morning when Penny or Five Dimes or like the regular sports books start putting up their props. Prize Picks typically puts them out before a lot of the sports books do, so they have nothing to copy from. I get yeah. the seeking suspicion that uh, Prize Picks is going to put up numbers that look very close to the bat. Very close to the bat? Yes. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about this off air, maybe. Um, but yeah, that or what? Or. And truthfully, if you were to wake up, if you were to try to try to bet on prize picks, like normally last year at one in the afternoon, you would say the same thing, right? Because typically, the what what ends up happening is at one a.m. This is what this is this is basically the workflow that I would have for prize picks last year. One a.m. the board goes up around one a.m. something like that. The board goes up. I have I have, I have two screens, right? I have the bat projections on one screen. I have price picks on the other screen. I just move my head back and forth and go, that K, okay, 6.8 Ks. What's the line? Five and a half? Okay, over, right? What's the line here? Oh, 5.2. What's the line here? Four and a half? Not worth it on price picks at least. And keep yeah. on going. And then the ones that I see that are off or enough, 
I go, okay, I found three of them. I go, $100 these two, $100 these two, $100 those two, like two picks to smooth out the variance. And then, you know what happens 20 minutes later? Five and a half turns into six, right? (laughs) Right? It like, it turned based on the action that's coming in. And then when you wake up in the morning, it's six and a half. And then you look and he's like, oh, the bat has it at 6.8, but the line's six and a half. It's like, oh, there's no value there. It's like, yeah, the value was there at one in the morning, right? (laughs) You got to get it. I think the speed of that is going to be much quicker. Interesting. Yeah, I can't play prize picks or underdog in my state. I can play uh, like normal sports books, but I can't play those. So I don't have a lot of... uh, insight into it but i know i a lot of people last year users said they they did really well with it right well the different the difference between the, the regular sports books and and prize picks is that like you don't you don't you could get small edges from anything like the forced <laughs> parlays make it that you need to get you essentially need to get a minus 137 on yeah. any prize in order for it to be break even or better so like you can't be sitting there going uh well this th- here's 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 a minus one here's something that's priced at plus one hundred that should be minus one twenty and then bet yeah. it right like you you can't you you wouldn't be able to to do that because you have to they pay out a fixed number for these parlays so right. most of the stuff on pri I I say prize picks is horrible for, on ninety nine plus percent of squares that they all like like if we went to prize picks right now and you randomly chose two things to parlay together. Your, your hold is probably 10 or 15%. Like that's how yeah. bad prize picks is, but you could find the diamonds in the rough that are off yep. enough that you could start putting stuff together. But of course they will start reacting to that. And I, I get the suspicion and this is from what I've seen in NBA. The NBA props on prize picks have gotten significant. Like I don't even bother anymore. Oh, right. Okay. Like they've gotten significantly better. And I'm not, and I'm not talking about the ones where this guy's injured or questionable. Cause a lot of times they may not even have those, those up. We don't know if Giannis is playing at all. So they just don't even have anything for the bucks up at all until we know right. that information or it's out of the blue. And they just, if, unless you get something in, in like, like 30 seconds, they're going to take off all the Milwaukee props in a sec. Once you see that notification come in that Giannis is out, the Milwaukee stuff will just be completely off the board and you got to wait five minutes and then they'll put new ones up that reflect that. Uh, but I'm talking about the props from early in the day, right? Like when they first put them up, I compared them to the RG projections and I did that early in the season, October, November, December. And I would find, I could easily find six to eight a day that are over minus 137. Like that, that are, that I could par- go around, here's $50, two picks, and just round-robin the whole motherfucker, right? Have, you know, I could have two, $3,000 in play with like a 5%, 10% edge. And it's right. like, seems pretty good to me. I'll take I'll take it 200 bucks a day in expected value every day. Give it to me. I mean, why not? Because I don't have to make lineups. I don't have to late swap. I'm done, right? I'm done. Like, that's the great thing about props is that yep. you wake up in the morning or you stay up late at night, you hit them early and... What's what's really there to do? Like, you really don't have to do much. Like when people that are like, what 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 props do you got? And it's like ten minutes before game time. It's like there's nothing out. There's nothing about it's it's an efficient market by this point, right? So, but I I get the feeling because in January, the prop like I just I would look and I'd be like this. It's an it's an eight game ten game slate. It's like 
I found two that were like barely plus EV. And it's uh-huh. like, like where what happened? What happened to fantasy point props where like the projection is like forty three and the prop is like thirty three and a half. Like where where are the where's the the rebound the rebounds we we have a, a a rebound prop of like we have a rebound a statistical projection of like nine point two and the rebound prop is like six and a half or seven mm-hmm. or something like that and I'm like like those it's it felt like in January at least like it barely that I mean I went to I, play, I started playing more poker even because I wasn't gonna play NBA DFS anymore but then like okay I'll still do the props and the props seem to even go away, at least on prize picks. An underdog. Right. Underdog tends to ca- just copy the sportsbook lines anyway. So it's like that there's not that much different because they're posting later as it is. But I just get the sense that if it, if it goes the same route as NBA, because I saw that in NFL also. Right? You must have seen in NFL, like, the first eight weeks of the NFL season was like, I mean, I'm like, it's like going outside and seeing that you had a money tree outside. I mean, <laughs> and then it just got to the point by by the later weeks where – it's like, yeah, there's like five things that are, there's like five of them that are, that are good enough. And then it's like, okay, you're a hundred and then, like, you make money. But I mean, early in the NFL with the blitz week two, week three, I'm like, I'd find like 26 things to start round robbing. I have like $20,000 in play with like a five to 10% edge and be like, like, how come no one's doing this? And of course, all of that stuff would move in my favor, right? You'd see right. it's like, I have 27 things and 22 things moved in my favor. Right by ten yards, fifteen yards, yeah. something like that, and it was beautiful. So I just, I just get the sense that the people behind the scenes at Prize Picks are a little bit more aware. I think the 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 initial lines are going to be much more efficient. I'm not saying that we can't find anything there, but I get the sense that it's not going to be like last year where you could find it, like half the strikeout props would be off. Uh huh. Well. That's a shame. Hopefully there's still enough edge out there, but yeah, that, that would kind of suck. But if you could bet on legal sports books, I mean that, uh, do oh, you, yeah. did, have you run into scenarios where, I mean, I mean, to me, it's the, the problem is getting the money down. Like how much, how much, how much are people getting down on? Like you do the collect, I, I'm assuming you're doing the covers.com show again. And you're doing stuff with obviously EV analytics, so you do you do some bet, your betting content as well. So it'll be yeah. like early in the afternoon. You're like, this is what the bat says, and here's the three, whatever thing. And then typically whatever whatever you've said, I've already got like twelve hours. Ago. I mean, like right. like a Probably lot of times, a slightly better number, yeah. <laughs> right, right at a better at a, right at, at it. You have a number that's worth value at a sports book, and I got the better number at Prize Picks and Underdog that I right. need for a minus one thirty seven. So it's kind of it's kind of weird. For me to say when people ask, like, oh, it when people in your Discord, right, the Roto Grinders uh, Bat Discord, like, start asking you about like, like, oh, are you gonna put your picks up? Are you gonna where's when's your video go up and stuff like that? It's like, dude, like, you subscribe to the Bat, like, <laughs> just look on look, just click on the statistical project. You could literally click on the standard projections screen, and I could guarantee you, I could tell you what. Cardi's going to say on the show like <laughs> eight hours in advance. So like, like why, why don't it, it's weird to say, why don't more people do that? I don't know. I mean, I'm not doing any sort of wizardry. Like I'm looking at, I'm using the version of EV analytics cause you can compare it to the, the sports books and everything. And it's great. 
Um, but I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at those screens. I'm saying, you know, these are the ones that I think look the best. They have the most expected value. And, and those are the picks that I'm generally giving out. Um, you know, if I can find the best line, you know, especially a line that's out of line with the rest of the market, like that's even better. Um, you know, out of line with sharper books, that's even better, but you know, I'm not doing anything special. I'm using the same projections as everyone else. Right. Yet you'd still get people. I mean, we saw that during NFL season where, where people are like, okay, Cardi on their way. When is, when does the blitz prop show go up on Thursday or something like that? It's like, dude, I'm getting all my stuff down on Tuesdays. Like, what, what are you <laughs> yeah. waiting for? And then like a lot of the stuff that you have up, it's like, oh yeah, Christian McCaffrey over 58 and a half is, is a, is value. And I'm like, I got him at 51 and a half. So like, like, yeah. what do you, what are you people waiting for? Like, it's yeah. like, like it's, it, it's so hard. It's like, I'm like, I've shown it on the show on the DFS pregame. I've literally shown it. You know me. I've tried like this is literally what I do. And I go, here's this screen. Here's that column. Here's this column. Is that column bigger or smaller enough from that column? Yes. So bet on it. <laughs> like I mean, like, 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 dude, I can understand people that don't subscribe to the bat, right? And they're like, oh, I want to wait for for Cardi at one in the afternoon or something to tell me what value is that based on the bat. It's like, okay. You can do that, but I mean, what is the bet? The bet? I mean, you're charging a lot. What three dollars a month for the bet? Or it's 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 some absurd. It's it's uh, it should be three thousand a month, but I mean, what what is it? What is it this year? Is it what two ninety nine for the season or something? Uh, three ninety nine for the season. Okay, it's, uh, it's got. Was it three ninety nine last season? Yeah, same price as last season. I think EV Analytics is two fifty for the season. If you have the bet at Rotor Grinders, you get a a pretty big discount off of the EV one. Also, if you want to do sports betting with it. Um, yeah, it's, it's too cheap for how good it is. It really is. But, uh, that's, that's where we're at with it. The shows are fun. The shows are a lot of fun. Um, but you kind of hit on the, the challenge of those is that like, you're trying to do a show at a specific time and the line has to be there at that specific time. And earlier in the day, the line was probably better. And so you're, you're really kind of handicapping yourself a little bit by doing these, but even doing that, I put out a tweet a, a few days ago of, of, my, my full record for the year doing baseball and football, all the different shows and everything. It's like a 25% ROI over the course of the season, over a hundred units for baseball and football with those limitations of doing them on shows. Um, like there, there is a good amount of money to be made here. Right. Last season in MLB, I, I had a 14% ROI. Yeah. On a which decent is amount, on a decent amount of volume. I'm sure I'll take it. I mean, it's better than playing cash games and DFS. I mean, come on. I mean, even the stock market over the course of several years, you're probably going to average like maybe 7% ROI. Like if you're, if you're beating that by a lot on props and you're realizing it quicker, potentially like it, uh, it's, it's really nice. Right. And it's not hard. And the thing is, is it's not, it's not hard. No. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. it amazes me that the people don't, get it <laughs> and it, there's nothing that's that I, I think what people what people do wrong on prize picks and underdog because i see this in chief's prop shop at, at roto grinders is that they they don't understand for instance the highest and now they have six pick flexes now i haven't done the math on six pick flexes but the highest ev card on on prize picks is a five pick flex and that's primarily because they give you 0.4x on a, on hitting three of them that's pretty much where the if they weren't if they didn't do that if they gave you like 10x on getting all five right 2x on getting four right 
and nothing else, like it, it would be just as good as, as doing like a five pick on underdog power for 20x, right? Mm -hmm. It's that 0.4x that makes it, you know, uh, slightly more, slightly more EV. But the thing is, is that when you're doing like four picks, five picks, six picks, it's like you're introducing variants into what you're choosing. So like if if you have, oh, I see five, imagine, get rid of the six picks because I, I haven't done that yet. But like, let's say there's five, there's five good props available on prize picks that are minus 137s or better, right? Maybe it's a pitcher out here. Maybe it's a pitch count. Maybe it's a strikeout. Maybe it's a, you know, over, you know, some some total basis thing that's off or some whatever, whatever it happens to be that so many people like, they're like, okay, what, 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 what do I do? It's like, oh, those are the these 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 are the four that are plus EV, and they go, okay, I'm gonna do a four pick of all four of them, right? And then three out of the four come in, and they lose, right? They get zero, and then they go the next day, they find the best four, and they put the best four. Now at the end of the season, they should be profitable, but the swings are gonna be like, dude, you can get three out of four like a week straight. Right. Yeah. The difference is, is that when I'm doing two picks, which pay out a little bit less than doing four on prize picks, but the EV is about the same, is that on three out of four I make money. Yeah. Right. At two out of four I lose a little bit of money. Right. But and typically I'm not doing fours. I'm doing I have ten. Right. So people have like, oh, there's these ten things to choose from. I'm going to choose these four for this card. I'm going to choose these three for that card. I'm going to choose these six for the like. like like, dude, why don't you just take number 10, number one, and do $10 on one, two, one, three, one, four, one, five, one, two, just yeah. all the way down. And just now you have 10 cards of that prop with the nine other that with the nine other that you got. And then you go to number two and you go, I'm gonna do two, three, two, four, two, five. And it's like now all of a sudden you have all the combinations of all 10. It takes you time to do it, obviously, because you got to do it manually. And now, out of the ten, if you get seven out of ten, that's a very good day, right? That's a that's a very good day. Six out of ten is slightly profitable. Five out of ten is slightly lost. But most of the time, like I've I've had rare days where I put in ten and only hit like three, right? Two or three. A lot of times, it's somewhere between four and eight or something. The eight out of ten days are great, right? I rarely get a ten, but when they hit, uh, great. That's even. I mean, it goes up exponentially. It just feels like like people, even in the prop markets, are like introducing variants. And in, in, they're trying to play a GPP when you should be playing it like it's a cash game. Right. I was going to say, how much of that is kind of like that lottery ticket mentality where you, you do a six pick for $20 and, and you win whatever, 2000 It says on your ticket, if you win, you win $2,000. And, and that looks better than you know, just trying to, you know, mix it up and just, you know, eke out a smaller, smaller, more consistent edge. Like, especially when you see people posting on Twitter, you know, oh, I hit this, I hit this six pick last night and it's so great. And like, they're probably, they're probably down overall. And uh, I just wonder how much of that is just people like wanting to hit it big as opposed to wanting to really be profitable long term. Well, I mean, they can, if they're all plus EV, if they're all plus EV, yeah. They, they, they can be profitable. It's just that your sample size, that's has to be 
ginormous. It's the, it's the same thing as playing GPPs in DFS. So like you could play yeah. a plus EV lineup, one plus EV lineup in a 50,000 person GPP. As long as you have to, I mean, if you play for 74 lifetimes, I mean, you will, you will be <laughs> profitable. Unfortunately, you don't get 74 lifetimes. So it's like, yeah. Do you want the EV that has your swings go up and down like this? Or do you want the EV that you're more likely than not than just step up like this? Right. It's right. going to be a slow, you're going to have a lot of nights where you put down, you put down 500 bucks and you, and you get back 580 bucks. You put down 500 in total props and you get back 360. You put down 500, you get back 840. You put down 500, you get back 462, right? Like you're never going to have, you're rarely, you're never going to have one where you put down 500 and you get back 20,000. Like that, yeah. that you're not going to get that. You're, you're, you're essentially going to at best triple your money. At be- if you get all of them right, because they, that's the, how they pay out on, on underdog and, and, and prize picks. If you put down 500 and get back a 1500, that means you, that means you you swept, right? So take your thousand bucks. I mean, but the likelihood of that happening is going to be once in a blue moon, rather than getting paid that fifteen, getting paid the the fifteen thousand dollars of hitting all ten and like whatever the whatever a ten pick would be. They don't even offer it. Like, dude, you may hit that once a year, right? Yeah. Like that, and you're going to go nine. You go nine out of ten. All the other cards. It's like you would have made more money just round robining. So to me, to me, I mean, I I know that you're not in the Chiefs prop shop, in the RG Discord. You you know you're in you're in the bat channel, but I almost feel like I I go in there and a lot of people are tilting, like, well, I'm 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 using like people are using Chiefs picks, right? I'm using there's value there, and people oh there it seems like everyone else is winning, but I'm not winning. It's like well, let me see your cards, and it's like oh yeah, well, I had these four yesterday and these five yesterday. It's like like why don't you just do two picks and just like you would have. I'm up. You would have won. You would you would be up money if you just round yeah. robined everything that there was because you had some. You had a three and a four this day. You had a four and a five that day. You had <laughs> a two out of three this day. Like you were above fifty percent. And when when it's minus one thirty seven, if you could have a win rate over fifty seven point five percent, you win money. Yep. But that's what sports. But that's I mean, if you're if you're trying to actually be a profitable sports better, that's how you. That's how you view things. It's like, well, I need to be fifty-seven percent right, and I'm six now. I'm sixty-two percent right, and I have a seven and a half percent edge. I just want to put down as much money every day with a seven and a half percent. I mean, it's just, yeah. just do that rather than, yeah. How do I put down all this money and then win like fifty thousand dollars at once, <laughs> like that? But I mean, but that's not what sports betting is. I mean. No, like that's that, not I mean, what, that's what people is. want it to be. And that's like the sexy way to think about it. Like no one wants to be like, okay, well, you know, this is a negative 130 line and it should actually be, you know, negative 110. And so I'm going to, I'm going to bet out like people are, a lot of people aren't thinking about it that way, but that is how every single profitable, successful professional better is thinking about it. Right. They're not thinking of like, okay, let me find 14 legs of a parlay to put together. Yeah. For 10 bucks. How many $10 14 leg parlays can I put together? Let me try to hit one. And then you take a look at the 14 leg parlay and go, oh, wow. 58% hold. Way to go, dude. I don't know how you could be profitable <laughs> like that. Right? Like you just, you do the computation and you go, you, you're realizing they're holding like 60% of the money in this. In, in, like you can't, you can't win. You can't beat this. Like yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. And I think the prop markets are very similar to that. I think, 
too many people uh, view the prop markets as efficient when they're not as efficient at all. No. No, prop markets are not are not very efficient. At least, I mean, we might come to a day where they they become efficient, but they are not there yet. Well, there's not not, there's not, not enough liquidity for them to be that efficient. Yeah. Which makes them the most beatable. But the thing is, is that they're the most beatable for beer money. They're both beatable for side income. Yeah. Like if you, if I, unless you're someone that's very good at getting accounts and, and operating underneath the shadows and having yeah. a syndicate or whatever like that. I don't view prop betting as like, oh, this is the way I make a half a million dollars this year. No, you're not doing that. But you can make five figures. You can make well into five figures. You can make what? Not, no, no. You could make, I, I mean. You I can would, probably make six. You yeah. can probably make a hundred. Th- yep, yep. If you're aggressive, if you're aggressive and and stu- and stay on the ball with stuff, yeah, I I think you absolutely can. But low five feet, like if if you said I want to, I I if you said that you had a, a I would say reasonable, if you had a ten thousand dollar bankroll just for this, I don't. I'd say most people, if you just used the bat and the blitz. And the RG NBA projections. That's all you use for statistical projections. And then you did some top-down stuff, arbitraging lines that are that are just way like we could get one side and end up getting a negative hold, right? You could find those types of situations. I don't see any reason why with a ten thousand dollar bankroll that at the end of the year you'd have thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, there's no guarantees. You know, it's right. it is you know betting, and you can't predict the future, but like. There is enough value where I would think that should at least be your expectation. Right. I'm, I'm, but you would do it slowly. It wouldn't be like, oh, yeah. you make $10,000. It would be the type of thing where you're you're betting, you're putting down $20, $25 on 10 different things on a day, right? And then you have to also factor in how much time you're spending on it. And I think with prop betting, you don't have to spend them. I think if, if you're the type of person that stays up late at night, Hit stuff before you go to sleep. Wake up in the morning. You hit the stuff that's available then. And then you check in in the afternoon and see if, you know, some pitcher got scratched, something got changed. You're like, okay, there's value now here. Like, I think in a grand total of an hour, you could, you could, you could get down, you could get down a couple of thousand bucks at five to 10% edge. As long as, as long as, you know, the, the books will still allow you to do so. You should be, I mean, you should be fine. I mean, I almost, I almost feel like that the, that it's not clamped down on enough by books. And I'm saying this, it's, it's, it's weird for me to say this because tons of people complain about getting limited. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's clamped down enough at books because so many people bet are horrible. Just like, like I, I take a look at prize picks and go, like why haven't they they limited me yet? Why why don't have like they, I have I have a certain limit. I I can't like do more than a thousand on a on a player or something like that. Uh, but like when I take a look at what the holds are, if you don't know what you're doing, like it's it's forty percent hold. I mean like it's just they get enough dumb people that yeah if if I wake up at one in the morning and, and hammer some strikeout props because the bat you know it has it off. They'll use that to shape their lines. They'll take my thousand dollars in action, and there's you know there's there's seven there's seventeen hundred lines out there 
that are awful. <laughs> That people are going to just be using. Or just that we get volume and we get twenty to forty percent of that. So, whatever. Yeah. And that's what it is. Do you th- do you think the market is is eventually going to get sharper? I do. I, I think it's inevitable. Um, I don't think it's anytime soon. I hope not. At I least. Hope not. But, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. But I think eventually. Yeah. I think it'll it'll get closer to that. What would it take, Cardi, for you to sell the bat to a sports book? Sell the whole system? Well, sell the whole so they they would make all of their their baseball lines based on the bat. So all of their mm-hmm. sides, totals, props, and like basically they said, we want to use the bat to make our originate lines. And that the line is the line. If you use the bat, that's the line that you're gonna see. Like how we, how much we, how much would it take? We'd be into seven, maybe eight figures. No, uh, yeah, it'd be definitely over a million dollars, maybe over ten. What happens if I? What happens if I told you that they could do it for four hundred dollars a, a season? <sighs> Hopefully, they're not doing that. Hopefully, they're not watching. <laughs> I'll let, all I'll say is that I think the, I think the the market on uh, on on prize picks is going to get. Uh, it's going to get sharper. I don't know for sure, but I highly, I highly suspect it's quite possible first day of the season that I, 1 a.m. for, you know, opening day, that I look and I go, wow, it seems like all these lines are kind of exactly what's in the column in the, in the, the bad statistical projections. And that's, it's kind of weird that didn't happen last season. <laughs> I hope, I'm just saying, I hope not. But, I hope not. <laughs> But I wouldn't be shocked if that if that is the case. If that is the case, okay, let's let's go into that that scenario. If that's the case, then what happens? Then what then what do we do? What do we do? What do we do, Cardi? Well, there's there are you know smaller sites like Price Picks. There's you know probably ten. If you look in your state, there's probably ten other sites like that that won't be doing that. Or eventually, there will be legal sports books in every state. Um, you know, drive drive over the state line to. To the next state over that has legal sports betting, or there, there's options. Uh, you, you know what? You know what you do. You, the, there'll be hella arbitrage opportunities. Yeah, that's true. Because what'll end up happening is that one site will steal the bat projections. I'm going to use the term "steal." They'll, they'll, mm. they'll know what it is. Uh, and they, and another site won't. They'll, they'll copy from sports books. So they'll copy from DraftKings or FanDuel or probably an offshore, probably. They, Copying from Pinnacle, uh, or something like that. Even though those line, prop market lines are not that efficient, uh, even at Pinnacle, uh, but you'll sit there plenty of times where the, the the bat number is like a run off from the run and a half off. I mean, a, a full strikeout and a half or two strikeouts off the sports book numbers. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you have uh, prize picks or whatever like that, that you know their their number is the bat number. Like you could, they're a middle opportunity. I mean, you could find, you could find issues, you could find issues where it's like, yeah, yeah, the, the bat says X, but like, like there's a two strikeout difference between all these lines. It's like, I could, I could bet the over here and the under there. And if it comes in at six strikeouts, I wouldn't both, I mean, like, yeah, like there you go. I mean, you could start doing that type of, I mean, the market, the market as a whole is never, I mean, is never going to be that, I mean, 
Imagine, imagine, Cardi, that all the lines will look like that. Then, then we have a problem. Yeah, that's true. But you, you don't, you don't, see, you don't see the issue where, like, I asked you. I mean, I, I, I consider it a trick question. When I asked you, like, how much would you sell the bat to a sports book? And you said ten million dollars. I said, what happens if I told you you were giving to them for four hundred dollars a year? Like, isn't isn't that what information is? Like, isn't that what information arbitrage is? Where let's say you let's say Cardi, you were you didn't have this publicly available, right? You just used it, just you. It's you and you only. You're the only ones with the eyes on it. And you went out and bet, and you were some big, you know, you you were taking advantage of it for a ton of money. Like they just yep. use your bets as as a way to shape their lines. Right. Right. So I mean, like it's the same reason why at one of the morning on prize picks, I can hammer a bunch of stuff, and most of the most of it moves because it's like, well, a lot of people are using a source that's better than what prize picks has. I mean, that's yeah. the way. That's the way you know adverse selection works. Yeah. So, that, and that is what books do. I mean, they know who the sharp bettors are. They they use those bets to to move their lines and make them more efficient. Right. So is is this another case why you should be charging more money then? <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots of reasons why I should be charging more money. It's certainly worth it, but you know, it's uh we we get into it every year. We don't need to we don't, we don't need to beat a dead horse again. But yeah, I mean, the bet is worth way more than than what I charge for it. Well, well, I'm, I, it maybe it's the selling point that I'm saying that sports books would be willing to pay a lot of money for this if it wasn't for the fact that Cardi's giving it away for four hundred dollars a month. So yeah. why do you take advantage of it? If not four hundred, four hundred dollars for the season. So it's sixty six dollars a month, which is stupidly low. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just, dumb. it's just dumb low. It's dumb, dumb low. I know it is. I How much know. money would you have made if you just charged the right price for it for the past eight seasons? I don't know. I mean, it, it's you'd be living to in know. a castle. You'd be you'd be you'd be <laughs> on a private island somewhere. But I think Perhaps. that's the best selling. I mean, to me, truthfully, it's the best selling point. Yeah. To say, I mean, you mentioned it before. People that buy it come to you and beg you to charge more. Like they I want do. to pay. I want to pay more for this. Yeah. You don't see that. You don't see me buying a TV from Best Buy and going, yeah, you should. I, I would have paid twice for this. Like, no, no, most likely <laughs> yeah. it's the other way. So, where can people find the bat? Uh, you can find the bat at Roto Grinders uh, for DFS. You can find the bat at EV Analytics for sports betting. Uh, if you do season long fantasy, it's at Fangraphs. It's free all year there. You know, season long, in season, rest of season projections. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Derek Cardi, and that's, I think that's it. Rotogrinders.com slash the the dash bat. Yes. The in all why is why is the in all capitals? It is. <laughs> That's the That's answer. The it is. At the at the origin, it was a it was a big acronym for something that was forced and weird, but um I don't know. I, I felt like a lot of projection systems that's the way they stylize it, and I thought it looks better that way, so that's okay. what it is. I, I, I noticed you know, that most people call it they go the and then bat in capitals. Yeah, it, it's like, everyone okay. stylizes it differently. It never caught on where everyone realized, okay, it should just be all caps. But you know, it is what it is. <laughs> right. So it's the technically it's the bat X. Yeah. Or the, or the bat ten. <laughs> it could be the bat ten. The X stood for experimental, but that's that's not the case. It's anymore. not experimental anymore. It works. It's it's yeah, it's not. It it's works. out of beta. <laughs> yeah. 
What, when, are you, when are you going to incorporate bad projections with uh, chat GPT? So I could, <laughs> I, could, I could go to chat GPT and go, what are the plays today? <laughs> that, yeah, it's gonna come, a- it'll come to that, that you, that you should be able to develop a, 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 an AI Cardi. So I actually, with, with EV Analytics, we have actually developed a product. It's, it's not for consumers, you know, but a B2B product where it takes data points from the bat, from the blitz, and it creates, it creates narratives based off them. It creates, okay, if you want to know uh, whether you should bet the over or the under on Garrett Cole's strikeouts today, it'll tell you, okay, he's in this park and this park does this, and he's with this umpire and this is the weather, and it, it does it. It's great. Um, it's actually, it's, it's live at a few sites, you know, over the last year, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. But but I can't type in what are the picks. Yeah, it doesn't know. Can't type in what are the picks. <laughs> What's the winning DFS lineup today? What's the top stack? I can't I can't do that. No, can't do that. Can't do that. The the, the bat the bat doesn't care about that. No, <laughs> the bat doesn't care about anything. The bat the bat probably doesn't have much of a personality. No, probably not. It's a machine, but uh, it's pretty smart. Okay, so you could follow Derek Derek Cardi on Twitter. Rotogrinders.com slash the bat. Go get the same projections that I use. So, I mean, like, what other selling point can I make at that? Baseball's coming up in two weeks. You're going to need projections for baseball. If you have some other projections that you're using, then that's better than nothing. But you know what's better than the better than nothing? The bat. So, go get the bat. And uh, and between the bat, lineup HQ and Rotogrinders, and uh, the theory of daily fantasy sports... You should be able to win at DFS, so go pick that up. The 15-hour audio DFS masterclass at theoryofdfs.com.